Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen. We do not have Emily with us for the time being. If you listened to our little update that we posted on Patreon, Emily is dealing with the loss of her home due to a fire. She is well, her family is good, but she is taking some much needed time to get that sorted. But we will have a whole host of special guests. And we have a great one with us today to talk about the second movie in our newly untitled theme that I'm just calling Love Month because that doesn't seem controversial anymore. But we're talking about 1949's The Heiress. And I am joined by Marion Davies biographer and Livia de Havilland superfan, Laura Gabrielle. Laura, how are you? I'm doing great. Talking about Livy and Monty Clift and men who treat us I'm, bad, I'm, but we love them anyway. Exactly. <laughs> Adore this movie. It's so, it's so good. good on so many levels. It really is. But before we talk about the heiress, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, then you should. We do updates. We do bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at remakes based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime, as well as our new series. But have you read the series? Emily and I also just finished our Being Elvis series talking about Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. We also give out regular care packages of gifts and let you guess on an episode. It all starts at just a dollar at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget that Emily and I both have books. Emily has her Viviana Valentine series. I have my book, but have you read the book? You can order that wherever you get books. And our Redbubble store has some fabulous art all designed by our former co-host, Samantha Richardson, as well as Terrence Hills. Featuring your favorite stars in funny designs, including our popular Jean and Judy Makoko mugs. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. Laura, did I never send you a Makoko mug? I never got a Makoko mug. and I, I am rectifying one. this. I'm making a note to rectify this after this episode because I you, need- of all people, do need a Makoko mug in your yes. life. Yes. Honestly, the pirate also could have been in the series if we're talking about men who do questionable things, but women feel they can change them. The whole movie is questionable. (laughs) The whole movie is definitely questionable. But we're talking about The Heiress, based on Henry James's book, Washington Square, directed by William Wyler, starring Livy de Havilland, Montgomery Clift, Ralph Richardson, and Miriam Hopkins. The film tells the timeless tale of a woman a wealthy heiress, as the title says, Catherine Sloper, played by Olivia Davlin, who is plain. And they emphasize this by just giving her bushy eyebrows and not putting makeup on her face. What are you going to do with Olivia de Havilland, honestly? They try really hard to make you think she's grossly unattractive, and it doesn't work for me at all. No, not, not with Olivia de Havilland. No, not at all. But she is a woman over 25 who is unmarried, and as the film shows us, That is a fate worse than death. Her aunt, played by Miriam Hopkins, really wants her to get married. And at a party, Catherine catches the eye of Morris Townsend, played by Montgomery Clift, who is interested in her. But the question is, why? Does it have something to do with her money? Maybe, maybe not. Her dad, played by Ralph Richardson, certainly thinks so. And the rest of the movie is a timeless tale of girl gets told dude is definitely a fortune hunter and girl thinks... Maybe I can change him. And also, if I can add to that a little bit, it's the tale of a girl who feels unloved, who feels unloved by her family and feels like her family thinks that she has nothing to offer. 
it's really powerful in that way, in the way that Olivia de Havilland and Ralph Richardson and all the rest of the cast show that, play to that theme of the story is really remarkable. Definitely. And that's the thing that I've seen this movie several times. I know you've seen this movie several times. I joke about she is presented as this spinster who's unattractive and sits at home, doesn't want to do anything. We talked about the long, hot summer in the last episode. I see Catherine Sloper in a lot of ways similar to Clara in that film, in that Catherine is a woman that, yes, maybe isn't gifted with being a glamazon, but she has talents. She's kind. She's empathetic. She, she's funny. Like, she's you, funny. Like at the party when Aunt Penniman says, oh, do you think he's looking down on us right now? And she says, that depends on where he is. She has a conversational style with people she trusts and people she cares about. She can talk to them. She's also good at embroidery, which apparently is not a talent, but I would say it is as somebody who cannot embroider at all. Those are all talents. It's just what society determines has value and what the upper class believes makes you valuable as a woman. To watch The Long Hot Summer and see Clara have such agency and be able to say what she wants in a relationship, that seems progressive for 1958. But what Olivia does so wonderfully in this movie, I watched the TCM intro with Ben Mankiewicz and Noah Baumbach, who brought this up, is that you see her character really transform Mm -hmm. as the movie progresses. What I love about how Olivia plays this character is that She really is a woman that is told that she's not intelligent, and that is more of the death knell for her than her looks. It's the fact that she can't keep conversation. It's the fact that she's not flighty and able to be funny in public, like with a big group of people. And that really is something that I was just like, that's her problem. That's what you think is terrible, is that she's just not good at small talk. I almost think that she doesn't have as much of a problem with it as the people around her do. And so the climax of her character development comes when she realizes that her father doesn't love her for those reasons. It's got a real Rebecca vibe to it. And to give people context... We loved adaptations in the 1940s. The 1940s are really this grand era of cinematic adaptations. Every book was getting adapted if they could pull it off. By the time this comes around, you have the style of what an adaptation is supposed to look like. And I even watched the trailer for this. And the trailer doesn't tell you anything about the movie. It's literally asking the question, what makes a great movie? And it says the actors. And then it shows you the actors. And then it says the director and it talks about William Wyler and it says the story. And then it talks about the source material by Henry James. And that's what makes the heiress. They're not even telling you what the movie is about. It's got actors that you like, a director that you love and a source that you've probably read. I would think that probably at this point in time, 1949, most people, at least most people who would go see the heiress had read Washington Square. It's a classic. Yeah. So showing Washington Square, people know what the story is. And then they can get a feel of how it's going to be played out with all these great actors. Henry James, I don't know off the top of my head how many adaptations of Henry James's books we had had at this time. I'm assuming a couple. 
can't think off the top of my turn of the screw i'm sure the innocence wouldn't be for another couple of years but i go back to rebecca because rebecca is really the story of this woman that is being constantly compared to another woman who has died yeah that is similar to the heiress in that Catherine is constantly being compared to her mother who has died there's that heartbreaking scene where morris's sister is sitting in the office of ralph richardson's character and She's looking at the picture and she's like, this is your daughter? And he's like, no, that's my wife. Catherine comes in and she just puts the picture down on the desk. It's a constant reminder that she is a detriment to her father and not comparable to her mother, who apparently was this highly skilled woman. But what I noticed this go around is that he keeps talking about, she says, I'm wearing cherry red. He's like, yes, but your mother dominated the color. And I keep saying he's surprised that all of this stuff, she's not her mom. He's surprised at this. Mm -hmm. And I kept saying watching it today, you know, man, 50% of a person's genes are determined by their other parent. So maybe what she's got is all of your genes and you are just the one that sucks. (laughs) We get the big turn at the end. I don't know if we want to spoil it. Not yet, but we'll come back to it. Okay. Ralph Richardson is really good in this. I've seen a couple things with him in them, but I know that he was old school British actor coming into this American film, especially with Montgomery Clift, who was such a proponent of the method by this point. I know at the intro, Ben Mank was talking about how you always watch Ralph Richardson. He's always doing some little bit of business to distract the audience from the other actors. And Olivia talked about that. Olivia had Oh, she did? Yeah, she did. She said it really bugged her. It really, <laughs> really bothered her because she talked about him having a glove and always slapping his glove against his hand. She just said it was so annoying. Like, like, why are you doing this? There's no reason for you to be doing this. No, and it's totally true. I was noticing how often he would pick something up or cross the room. I was like, you can stand still for something. I know that Weiler was really a fan of the novel and wanted to make this. And it's what makes the movie so enduring is that it feels so contemporary even though it's set in 100 years before 1949 and it's made in 1949 you can watch this in 2024 and the acting just feels so very fresh i'm kind of surprised pbs has not remade this recently they did a broadway version a couple years ago with jessica chastain which begs the question i want to ask this right off the bat laura but if they remade this today Would you want that? My whole attitude toward remakes is if something is based on a source material, the heiress, the movie was based on the source material, the heiress, the play, right? Which of course then was based on Washington Square. I feel like if they wanted to remake the heiress, the play, that's totally valid and legitimate. Just because somebody does something really well doesn't mean that it should be off limits for anybody else but if they were to remake the movie the heiress that's off limits because that's been done you can't replicate that it was of its time in a certain time and place with a certain director a certain actor you can't replicate that experience but the play you can because it's written it can be interpreted better I definitely don't have an antipathy towards a remake in the sense of adapting the play. 
And honestly, I feel like this is something I could not help myself from saying. I feel like there's a remake just waiting to burst out of this starring Jessica Chastain and Jacob Elordi or something. Because the casting just really lends itself to a good, heavy-hitting A-list actor and the hottest young actor you can think of right now it lends itself to that so hollywood's welcome to take that idea if they would like to do that (laughs) of the play but it makes it more difficult because now we have this movie we have this movie that has entered into our culture to a certain extent and it would be difficult to sincerely adapt the play without influence from the movie but you know somebody could do it somebody could do it Somebody could do it. We're getting a Jimmy Stewart biopic. Somebody felt they could do that. (laughs) But I want to talk more about the acting because it's so funny. I encourage everybody to watch the trailer because I love that this movie says what makes the heiress great. And they say the actors and it's Livia and Ralph Richardson and Monty Clift. And they talk about fresh off of this. They all have these accomplishments and it's just like, and also don't forget the young hot star, Vanessa Brown, who plays Mariah and Mona Freeman, who plays the sister that's getting married in that one scene. They are trying so hard to say that they're also cultivating young talent and no disrespect to the girl playing Mariah, at least, because she does a lot with a little But I thought it was really funny that the movie felt the need to stretch beyond the three big names. I wonder if they were trying to build Paramount Stars. Oh, that's a possibility. Yeah. And they just didn't. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, no disrespect to Mona Freeman and Vanessa Brown, but I could not tell you anything that I've seen either of them in beyond this. I was like, Mona Freeman, the girl in that one scene, she has like two scenes with somebody. Wouldn't exactly call that a star-making performance. But Olivia in this movie is so freaking good. She won her second Oscar for her performance here. I don't know if you can tell me this, Laura, but to look at her output in the 40s, she was doing a lot of films starting in 1940, Host Gone with the Wind. She was just in a bunch of different things, comedies westerns dramas it's pretty chronic until about 1943 and then she did a couple movies in 46 she did the snake pit in 48 and then she didn't make another movie until the heiress and she wouldn't make another movie for i think three years after this movie came out when she came back for my cousin rachel i'm sure there's a known reason for why she had those gaps but i don't know them right now so i'm assuming you can tell me as our living expert I can tell you a couple things. After Gone with the Wind, after she was nominated and lost to Hattie McDaniel, which of course was a very momentous win, she realized that Warner Brothers was misusing her. Although she had this contract, right? She had this contract and she was being put in all these movies that she really didn't like and she kept being put on suspension and this time being tacked on to the end of her contract because that's the way studios worked back then. It was Um, indentured servitude, for lack of a better word. Right. So she was under contract for seven years. The studios interpreted that to mean seven years of time worked, not seven calendar years. She thought that she should be doing better, better quality work. And so she was turning down all of these bad movies that Warner Brothers was giving her because she knew that she needed something more after having been nominated for Gone with the Wind. Come 1943... 
she was at the end of a rope. She had God knows how much time left on her contract. She had been suspended so many times. She went to a lawyer and the lawyer told her, I think that we have a way out of this because I think that the studios are interpreting this law wrong. The California labor law of a seven-year contract. I think they're interpreting the law wrong. I think it should mean seven calendar years and not seven years of time served. So I think we can take them to court over this. Betty Davis had tried a similar thing back in 1937, I think, 38, but she lost. And Olivia took up the mantle and mm-hmm. took Warner Brothers to court and won. It became the de Havilland decision, which is still cited today in labor law that says that an employer can only hold you for a contract for seven calendar years, not seven years, seven years of time worked. She was free from her contract. <laughs> she had been there seven years. She was free from her contract with Warner Brothers and went out on her own. She did a couple movies with Paramount. She did. So that was 1943. In 1946, she did To Each His Own, which was her first Oscar win. Then Snake Pit, 48. In 46, she married a guy named Marcus Goodrich, a writer. It was a bad marriage. He was very, very controlling of her intimidated her and she didn't work as prolifically as she had been partly because Marcus was so controlling and so intimidating and partly because when you were under contract to a studio system to a studio you were guaranteed work because of the studio system that was sort of a sacrifice on the one hand that she made by going out on her own and not being under contract to a studio she had to find her own roles She divorced Marcus ultimately in 53 and married a Frenchman shortly thereafter, and then went and lived in Paris and had another child and had this amazing life in Paris. Even in all of those titles that you mentioned, and I know she's talked about how her work in the early parts of her career, fluff roles and all of that, but even some of things like simple, like, you know, Princess O'Rourke is not a hugely, it's not a hugely in-depth, life-changing seminal film of its era but it's so sweet it's so cute and she is so good in it it's delightful she was embarrassed about that movie for her entire life (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing to be embarrassed about with her performance here what i noticed watching it this go round was how to go back to that concept of transformation when she's introduced we now would call social awkwardness is so charming in its way. Yeah. When she's sitting with Morris's sister, Morris's sister's trying to make conversation, you know, oh, your aunt is here to visit? Yes. Yeah. And she just leans over to like create distance between the two of them. Well, yeah. does she like New York? Yes. The way that her body responds to these things, it's almost like a visceral cringe that she's trying to hold in. Very charming in how she presents it. But her facial expressions in this movie are bar none. Some of the best physical comedy that you will get. The guy that she's dancing with in the first party scene goes to get a drink. And Lavinia, her aunt, comes and says, oh, you make him find you. And she drags her away. And she sees the guy's clearly abandoned her for someone else. But look at her face of just like horror mixed with dude. Really? is yeah. just <laughs> amazing. And it's why when she finally meets Morris, there is that charm and that cuteness between the two of them because she has no clue how to handle somebody actually 
showing interest, let alone sexual interest in her, she reverts back to being not necessarily a little girl, but a woman that just does not know what's going on. Her vocal cadence changes throughout the movie. She's very high-pitched, higher registers as the movie progresses, and then by the end of the movie, she's ultimately in her regular speaking voice, which is about three octaves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lower than her regular speaking voice. The way she uses everything at her disposal, she uses her voice, she uses her eyes, her eyebrows. If you look at the position of her eyebrows. Those brows are epic. At the beginning of the movie and the position of her eyebrows at the end of the movie. She uses everything she has to communicate this character. My compliments to our costume and hair and makeup department because this might be an anthema to say on air, but I have not seen Now Voyager. I know, I'm working on that. We all have our blind spots. We all have our blind spots, but Now Voyager is, I always get the vibe, is somewhat similar in that Betty Davis is also playing this terminally unattractive character (laughs) that gets a glow up. At least in this film, the Edith Head gowns And the Wally Westmore makeup and the hair, all of that also creates this armor for her character. Mm -hmm. A lot of dark colors. Even when she's wearing that beautiful party dress, it's dripping and frippery. It doesn't suit her in a way. By the end of the movie, when she's embraced these dark colors and the form-fitting outfits, I was shocked when she's reunited with her family after her father has died at the end of the movie and she's got a little cleavage going she's got the deep v's it's tasteful it suits the character and it's also this assertion of her own identity which no one's going to notice unless they're really looking after her father died there was something in her that was liberated definitely Mm -hmm. we have to talk too about monty clift Our theme is focused on men who are just dirty, rotten scoundrels, but we love them anyway. Morris Townsend is just one of the great male characters. The trailer for this movie kept saying, remember him in Red River? Well, this movie really lets him show his romantic side. And I was like, I didn't need to see Red River. And I'm pretty sure the audience already saw the romantic side because he's hot. I'm glad that, oh, you put him in a romantic film. He would have been fine if you put him in a horror movie. It wouldn't have mattered. But this was only Montgomery Clift's third film. He had done The Search in 1948 and the eponymous Red River after that. And then he did this. And then he would just go on to the career that he had. This is not just your typical soft boy role. Morris has to be a certain type of guy. And that introduction between him and Catherine in the movie is so skillfully done. I don't know, Laura, if you know whether the two liked each other, had a camaraderie, but the way that he introduces himself, he doesn't come on too strong. He presents himself as a similar social outcast who is kind of shy, but he makes his intentions known just right off the bat, being like, you and I are going to dance all night and I don't really care. And she gets that great little callback to being abandoned when she ends up dancing with somebody else and he's just kind of standing there with his cups in his hands. Their dynamic, we spend over an hour in the movie before there's even a kiss between the two of them. It's hot. It is hot, no matter how you slice it, because he brings in so much energy of whatever stripe you want that 
who wouldn't men or women would not be seduced by that you touched a little bit on the relationship between them their on-screen chemistry is great it's um, fantastic you would not be able to tell at all that that off-screen olivia got upset with him <laughs> <laughs> because he was the proponent of this new fangled acting style that she found really self-serving she got irritated with you can tell that the filming was not a terribly fun time for Olivia. She was irritated by Ralph Richardson. She was irritated by Montgomery Clift. She was also, at this point, having a difficult time with her husband. So that might have affected some of her views of that. Montgomery Clift would do take after take, wanting to do it a different way. Meanwhile, he was kind of holding up production. And Olivia, being sort of the consummate pro, was like, what is your deal? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, she was kind of bewildered by him. But on screen, you could never tell. You can't tell at all. And that's the frustrating part of this movie. And it's something the script doesn't get enough credit for, is that there is, I don't know if I'm just naive, I always feel there is genuine ambiguity for Morris's actions. You could interpret them either way, up until, and I might even say after, the grand turn, which is that they're going to elope, she says to him, well, my dad's going to disinherit me. And even if he doesn't, I'm not going to take any money from him because it's about love, boo. He decides to not show up. Even after he comes back and he explains why he made those decisions. I don't know. Maybe I'm just really swayed by Montgomery Clift in a Tales. That's part of the genius of William Wyler's direction that he does he leaves this ambiguity about what exactly Morris's aims are. We're pulled in one direction toward the end, but still we're so taken by his charm, we can still see, even at the end, why Catherine fell for him. He shows up with that mustache at the end of the movie, and I'm like, eh, that's not helping, but I'm... <laughs> Still really into it. And that's really the power struggle of this movie is Catherine in the middle of her dad versus her paramour. Ralph Richardson, that ambiguity extends to his character as well. Does he not love her or does he genuinely want to protect her? Is there some gray area that a parent can maybe not love their child but still not want anything bad to happen to them? Or love their child enough to try to keep them from marrying the wrong person. That's the thing that I laugh about it when I watch it, where he says, oh, he just wants to spend your money. And she's like, yeah, but he could still make me happy while he's doing that. And he's like, yeah, but wouldn't you want to know? And I'm sitting there yelling at the TV like, no, we don't care. He's just really hot. <laughs> That's the thing, too, is that they're both delayed maturity-wise. Catherine is very much still a young, naive woman. And Morris is a spendthrift who's been seemingly coddled for a lot of his life. He talks about putting in his time and working the land at the end of the movie when he comes back, but you're still not believing that he's a guy who's given up the champagne taste that he's looking for. Yeah, and to that point, does Morris even really understand what love is? Maybe he really thinks yeah. that he loves Catherine. And he thinks that maybe love is loving money. Her father says he's got 
these expensive gloves and what does his sister have? She has nothing. Maybe it's a generational divide. I'd be like, does that really mean that he's callous and unfeeling? There's backstory. There's context to people. That's what I appreciate about the script is it's saying you can't define these characters based on how they live and die on the frame. There's yeah. all these other things that happen in a person's life that we don't see and we're just getting that small glimpse. And the other thing that I just thought of just now, and I have not ever thought of before, so thank you very much for that, Yay! Um, is this story takes place at a time, at a turning point in, in what marriage means. 1849, people are just starting to marry for love and not for money. So maybe Morris represents this older society that did marry for money and not necessarily for love. And then Catherine represents this newer, more romantic society. There's no way to test until her father puts the doubt in her head that he wouldn't have made her happy. That's the thing that's really skillful about the script is that these two people could have certainly had fun with the money that she's going to inherit. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. It's about awareness of intention. That's the big thing is that she tells her dad at one point, I didn't know it until you said it. That's really what the script is getting at is that nobody thinks their partner is cheating until someone else tells them, maybe that's what's going on. And then that's all a person can think about sometimes is they're looking for the signs to validate that belief. And yeah. that's really the whole point of this. So when Morris comes back in this third act, he goes into the house and the audience has already kind of had that issue where he's left her, he's come back home and you think maybe this will be the time. Maybe he'll show proof to the audience that he has changed. And he just starts looking around in the living room and he tells yeah. Miriam Hopkins' character, I'm home. And you're just like, mm, nope, yeah, nope, nope, that's not the response. And the audience can choose to interpret that as like he feels a sense of belonging with Catherine and they're going to make this work. But the way the script and William Wyler's direction, there's only one way to interpret that from there. Much like Mariah, we've all just had to bolt the door and be like, mm, nope, can't go back, yeah. can't go yeah. back. There are a couple of things at the end when Morris comes to the door, but we don't see him. We only see Catherine's face. And I wrote about this actually once for my blog about how we see her over the span of seven seconds go through all the emotions in her face tenderness, anger, surprise that he's there, nostalgia. There's just so much in her face in that one very, very short scene. The cinematography by Leo Tover is just on another level. There's so much great face acting in this movie. And that's a great scene too. Even just some of the sequences of just to emphasize how beautiful Montgomery Clift was at this point in his career, the way the camera just shows his face when he's in the rain in the middle part of the movie, when him and Catherine are talking about eloping, just the way the light hits Montgomery Clift's face, you're just like, damn, damn, <laughs> that is a beautiful, beautiful man. I know that Montgomery Clift has this tragic backstory to him, this mien that really 
how things ended really colors how things started with him. But to watch this film, even knowing what I know about, quote unquote, the longest suicide in history, I don't care because he has such vibrancy in, in, in so many of his roles up until his car accident. And even after, the kinetic energy is still there. Yeah. It's just you can see things change. I can only imagine that that had to be difficult to have such a fantastic look to him and be praised for that as one of the most good-looking men in history. And then to have that taken away, I can only imagine what that says. If we're talking about this movie being about how society values people, mm -hmm. hell, how does Montgomery Cliff get valued in a society that looked at beauty and is cited as one of the most beautiful men ever and then have that last act to his career that he had? It's just makes your brain yeah. go in different directions. It's unimaginable. I'm thinking of this, of a similar situation with Carol Lombard. I mean, when Carol Lombard had her yeah. car crash at the beginning of her career, and she thought, because she had been, you know, bathing beauty and touted as this glamour girl, and then to have all these scars on her face, she thought that her career was over. And it also extends in some ways to Olivia de Havilland. I did some math, and she's 33 when she made this movie. I think when she did... My cousin Rachel, she was close to 40, if not right yeah. at 40. We joke now about how roles change for women over 35. Olivia de Havilland really did experience that in some ways with some of her films into the late 40s, early 50s, because Catherine is an undeterminate age. We're led to believe that she is older. And even in something like My Cousin Rachel, where she is flipping gorgeous, just gorgeous in that movie. The audience is never meant to forget the age gap there. Yeah. That always irks me as somebody who is in their 30s. We all wish we could look like Olivia Havilland yeah. at any point in our life. Yes. At any point. Any point in time. Olivia Havilland at 104. I wish I could look like Right? Oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah, she was still fantastic and gorgeous. This got her her second Oscar. I think her last. Her last. Um, do you think two Oscars is enough? <laughs> Do I think two Oscars is enough? Well, I guess it depends it's on the person and their history. She should have won for the snake pit. That was a tough year, but the snake pit was just an absolutely tour de force performance. Ingrid Bergman won three. Catherine Hepburn, of course, won four. It all d depends on who else, I guess, is in the categories with you. It's all luck. Which movies get made in which years. And... Yeah. What always... I'm surprised by is Montgomery Cliff was also nominated four times, never won, was not nominated for this movie. I shouldn't be surprised because we know Oscar always gets it wrong, but how? How do you not nominate him for this performance? I guess because the assumption is, is he's the love interest. He's yeah. a romantic leading man that's not stretching the bounds of acting. Who won? that year i'm looking right time. now we're going to figure this out because i am just questioning all of the life choices right now so best actor in a supporting role so ralph richardson was nominated in supporting okay i don't know necessarily if monty would be in supporting as well that could very well be it yeah. If that was the case your other nominees that year were arthur kennedy for champion James Whitmore for Battleground, John Ireland for All the King's Men, and the winner was Dean Jagger for 12 O'Clock High. Okay. That's a sure. choice. 
I don't know necessarily if they would have split the vote. In case anybody's curious about who was nominated in Leading Actor, it was Richard Todd for The Hasty Heart, Kirk Douglas for Champion, Gregory Peck for 12 O'Clock High, John Wayne for Sands of Iwo Jima, and the winner was Broderick Crawford for All the Kingsmen. All the Kingsmen's not necessarily considered a beloved movie. It's really interesting. You can see the remnants of World War II, Sans Iwo Jima, and, but then we're getting this weird reunion of the Western, which is odd. If anybody knows about what was going on in the 1949 Oscar year, would love to know. I'm irked. Monty got robbed. Justice for Monty. In case anybody's curious, Montgomery Cliff did get four nominations throughout his career. 1949 for The Surge, 1952 for playing another similar guy that we should really hate for A Place in the Sun. And then he got nominated again in 1954 for From Here to Eternity. And then his last nomination was 1962 for Judgment at Nuremberg, which honestly, he should have won that one. That um, amazing. Second week in a row, we've brought up Judgment at Nuremberg, which... As one does. As one does. That's just a film that we should definitely talk about at some point once we've accurately prepared for just the hardness of that three-hour opus. You have to really gear up for that movie. You, can't you really do. It on a whim. We should mention one other member of this cast that we did not, which is Miriam Hopkins. Oh, yeah. Miriam Hopkins as Aunt Lavinia... That's also mentioned in the original trailer. But welcome back, Miriam Hopkins. She had left Hollywood to go on the stage, continued to get in trouble for being a big pain in the ass <laughs> everywhere she went. Oh, girl. And then came back to make this movie. She worked with Wyler again on The Children's Hour, which is another fantastic performance of hers, playing a similar character in that she's annoying, but ultimately a tragic lovelorn example of a different era she's so good in this and again was not a young woman by this point miriam hopkins was gorgeous in the 1930s still looks very good here for being a woman getting up there in years i love her character she is bringing some much needed levity into this movie her and olivia de Havilland have a great rapport there's that part where she runs into her aunt's room to tell her that morris and her are eloping she already knows everything. Everything yeah. is like, I already know. How would I know if I'm not here? She's just very involved in everything. And she's so fun. I want to say when I read Alan Ellenberger's biography of her, she still fancied herself a star at this point. And there were expectations in how to treat her on this set. The original title for that book that got rejected by Kentucky was The Most Magnificent Bitch or something. Mary Hopkins walked so Olivia de Havilland could run. If you have not seen Miriam Hopkins and some of her best work of the 1930s, you should definitely go back and look because all of them are funny and saucy. Her playing grand dom characters in her later years worked out really well for her. I don't know if I'm talking out of turn, but I feel like she was right before the hag exploitation got to be really bad. She yeah. thankfully did not have to deal with a lot of that. Definitely was a big pain, but we love her. And I love her in this. She's so good. Love her. So I went to Paris. As one does. As one does. A couple years ago for the opening of the Olivia de Havilland Theater at the American University of Paris. Her daughter was there. Her daughter was there with her husband. Very lovely people. Her husband got up and introduced the heiress. So they showed the heiress at 
the theater, the new theater that was being inaugurated. He said, knowing Olivia and knowing what the plot of this movie is, I can only imagine that she must have drawn this experience from, and then her daughter said, no, 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 don't say that. Wait till the end. So like, okay, okay, we'll talk about it at the end. So we watched the movie and then he came back up and he said, Olivia had a really tough time as a teenager when she essentially was kicked out of the house by her stepfather. Her stepfather had caught her in the, she wasn't supposed to be in the school play. She was doing it anyway. And the stepfather said, you can either quit the play or leave the house forever. And Olivia decided to leave. And she was went through this really horrible depression, you know, essentially feeling like she was unloved and abandoned. So Giselle's husband, her Olivia's daughter's husband, said that he thinks that she was drawing on that experience to create the character of Catherine, who was unloved and abandoned and let down by everyone who was supposed to love her. When he said that, I was like, that's kind of amazing. It's kind of an amazing analysis. It really is. And I know the method gets... It's bad rep, deserved and undeserved. But so much of acting is drawing on personal experience, whether intentionally or not. So I could see why she would get frustrated at Clift for having to inhabit the character. She's tapping into, possibly tapping into her own backstory in that way. It's what makes the movie so heartbreaking because it is presented as this love story, this unrequited or tragic romance. And yet it really is a really dark family drama about what happens when you, as an adult, realize that your parent is a narcissist that doesn't have any conception of you as your own individual person. There's one specific moment where Ralph Richardson says, your mother could do it. Why can't you? It's why I always say, well, half of your genes come from both parents. What's your culpability in this? So the way that Olivia, without saying anything in that scene, is pretty much saying, I'm not that person. I'm not a person that is now gone. I'm my own person. And that's ultimately what the audience wants. They want to see her succeed as her own person. Yeah. And it's ultimately why the relationship with Morris does not work out. Because were she to be with him, she would all, again, be sublimating parts of herself to keep this person happy, that there is this air of she needs to appreciate. And I think that's ultimately where Lavinia is coming from, is you need to appreciate this opportunity with this guy because you will never get it again. And yet, at the end of the movie, when she's going up that staircase, it is her first real act of autonomy. Rightly or wrongly, she's made a decision and she is willing to own that decision. And that's a huge step. It's a huge step for the character because she didn't have any of that before. And all of that's wrapped up in Montgomery Clift and pleated pants just looking like a snack throughout the entire (laughs) movie. The Heiress is a fantastic movie. It's one of the greats, in my opinion. There's a reason that every director talks about Weiler and this movie. We need to be talking all the time about Olivia de Havilland, what a trailblazer she was, both financially, professionally. Personally, 104 years old, longevity-wise, she's also just... I mean, yeah. Last remaining star of the golden age of Hollywood. I maintain that she passed in, what, February of 2020? July. We all should have known 2020 was just like a 
gone year at that point. I remember when she passed being like, well, we were in the throes of the pandemic. Everything was bad. I was like, well, just wrap it up. We're done. If the comet comes at this point, we all should have seen it coming. But I love this movie. I think this movie is one of the great movies. It's just perfect. Laura, final thoughts on The Heiress. If you haven't seen it, you're missing out. It's a triumph of filmmaking, of acting. It just represents the best of the best of the golden age of Hollywood. Let us know your thoughts on the heiress, Montgomery Cliff's hotness, anything you want. You can email it to us at ticklishbase at gmail.com or you can send it to us via all social media platforms, Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as Instagram and Facebook at ticklishbiz. I'd like to thank Laura Gabrielle once again for joining us on this episode. Laura, feel free to let people know where they can get in touch with you, buy your books, anything you have upcoming. I can be found on all social media except TikTok, which I still can't figure out. No, uh, I can. Instagram, I'm at Backlots Film on all platforms. So at Backlots Film, Instagram, Twitter, threads. My book is available everywhere, anywhere you want to get it. I always encourage people to support their local bookstores. The book is called Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies. It's an amazing book. And she's usually always doing events and whatnot. So if you get an opportunity to see Laura in person, I heartily endorse it. Yeah, I'm going to be at the Niles SNA Silent Film Museum on the first Saturday in March. The third? For that first Saturday in March is. I'll be there. And then for people who are in Texas or anywhere around there, I'm going to be at the Austin Film Society on March 30th. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or really any podcast app. Reviews matter and we would really love one in 2024. So head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us five stars. You can once again follow us on all social media platforms, ticklish underscore biz on Twitter, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at ticklishbiz. You can always follow me at therap.com, as well as on all social media at Kristen Lopez 88. Emily Edwards is over at Ms. Emily Edwards. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content, like our episode on Priscilla. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And my book, But Have You Read the Book, is out. You can order it wherever you buy books. And if you want to listen to any of our episodes going all the way back to episode one, you can always find that at our free archive, which is ticklishbusiness.podbean.com. We will be returning with a new episode on March 13th, transitioning out of Love Month, but still keeping it hot with a tribute to the anniversary of Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, and Jack Lemmon in the film Some Like It Hot. Till then.